Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest movies into your home at the touch of a button. Gael Garcia Bernal is a reporter who's subjected to months of torture when he's falsely accused of espionage in Rosewater. Directed by Jon Stewart and now playing on demand before Netflix and Redbox. Trax tells the remarkable true story of Robin Davidson, a young woman who leaves her urban life to trek through the sprawling Australian desert. Starring Mia Vasikowska and Adam Driver, it's now available on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From frigid New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I consider starting a side business in the lucrative tree poisoning industry as we discuss David Gordon Green's Texas set drama, Joe, starring Nicolas Cage and Ty Sheridan. And later in the episode, we'll be bringing you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And in honor of Joe, we were going to do Texas movies, but then we remembered we'd already done that in episode number 25 when we reviewed Killer Joe, not a prequel to Joe. No, it's a sequel. Sequel to Joe. Joe comes back as a killer. <laughs> as Matthew McConaughey. Now I'm a killer. <laughs> killer Joe. <laughs> so instead, we decided to widen the scope and pick some movies set in the American South. And please direct all complaints about whether or not it's fair to group Texas into the South to Matt Singer. He's kindly volunteered to field all debates of regional boundaries. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few new notable films on demand on cable. Matt, what are your picks? Well, this first one is a really interesting one. Uh, it's sort of morbid curiosity, I suppose, that makes me want to see it, but I'm really fascinated to watch it. It is a film entitled Accidental Love. It is directed by someone named Stephen Green, <laughs> but someone named Stephen Green is actually someone named David O. Russell, and Accidental Love was originally called Nailed. This is the film that David O. Russell made a few years ago, and it has a fascinating production history. You can read about it online. I'm not going to give you all the details. But essentially, they started making this movie, and it, they never finished it. They had uh, investor problems. Budget kept falling through. They kept having to stop and start. I think there were union complaints. It was just, it was just a mess. And eventually, David O. Russell like, walked away from the movie and said, it's, it's not going to happen. It's over. But the people that own the footage and stuff decided to finish it anyway, and they put it together. I think they edited it, re-edited it, maybe reshot some stuff without David O. Russell. So hence the fact that it's directed by quote unquote Stephen Green, who I don't believe is a real person. And they they have released something now. Uh, how good or bad it is, I don't know. I haven't seen it, Allison. Have you? You have seen it? I have not. I am also morbidly curious. You about have to this. be curious, right? Because David O. Russell is such a fabulous director, right? And, and this is also it's. You haven't mentioned the concept of this. No, it's I'll not, yeah. I can I can read the plot description. Please. The plot description is a small-town waitress, that's Jessica Beale, I believe, gets a nail accidentally lodged in her head, causing unpredictable behavior that leads her to Washington, D.C., where sparks fly when she meets a clueless young senator, I believe that's Jake Gyllenhaal, who takes up her cause. But what happens when love interferes with what you stand for? Question mark. Congressman Woodwell, I'm from your district. Yes. I saw you on TV. You were great. That idiot can't help you, Alice. 
What brings you to D.C.? I came to see you because I want to help people that have weird conditions that they can't afford to fix. Alice, what's up? Hi, Alice. Yikes. I guess that's healthcare. Oh, dear. That's uh, not very manageable. So not what you would call maybe an easy tone to achieve, I'm, I'm guessing. Yes. Just even from that description. Yes. Which makes you wonder what this final product looks like without... Right the director's touch but you have to say it does sound a little edgy isn't the right word but a little more politically invested than the stuff david russell's been doing recently which is fine but it's a little more middle brow a little more kind of just relationshipy not so i mean this sounds like kind of one of his earlier films right it sounds like something that is very sort of driven by an, an idea or a message which i wouldn't really say about the stuff he's been doing lately even though i've enjoyed those movies i don't think he's i think he's taken a step back from that sort of filmmaking that sort of maybe a little more didactic which can go can go wrong or it can go right so uh, you have to be aware that this was taken away from its director and re-edited by who knows who and that it could be kind of a mess. But I think if you're a David O. Russell fan, you have to be interested to see this one. I know I certainly am. I'm really looking forward to checking it out, good or bad. That's Accidental Love, and that's available now on VOD. Next up, a film that I've heard is very good, and I can't imagine why anyone would not want to see it. It's called Wild Card. This is the new Jason Statham thriller. <laughs> he stars as a Las Vegas bodyguard with lethal skills and a gambling problem. And when he gets in trouble with the mob, he has one last play, dot, dot, dot. It's all or nothing. Get it? Because it's called Wild Card, and he's a gam- gambler. And also his name. Yeah, did I, don't, I, I don't get it. Did I mention that his character's name is Nick Wild? Oh, that's good. I was going to say either that or Card. Well, maybe one of the other characters is named Card. Yeah. I don't know. The other actors in the cast, it's a very good cast. Michael Angarano, Anne Heche, Sophia Vergara, Jason Alexander, Hope Davis, and Stanley Tucci. Very good cast. Directed by Simon West, who did uh, a couple of a couple of I mean, he did Con Air. That's his masterpiece. That's immediately <laughs> what I think of. I think he did the first Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Uh, he did the second Expendables movie. So he's had some up and downs. <laughs> but come on, Con Air. That's a masterpiece. Absolutely. Uh, and the only thing I think that would, was missing from Con Air was Jason Statham in, a, in an important role. Wait, so and he wasn't like even he wasn't a thing yet. yet. I so, recognize yeah. that, but. But now they should do a re-release where they digitally insert him in yes. some role. Of yes, Con- exactly. Is what you're like saying the, of Con Air. Yeah, the Con Air George Lucas special edition. Exactly. Where he plays, I don't know. I think a bad guy. A new bad guy. Yeah, yeah right. Someone on the plane who could be like, sorry, mate, you gotta yeah. die now. And he, he could be like the vicious leader of some British gang who, for reasons unknown, has ended up in American jail. Right, and he fights with Cyrus the Virus or something. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. So I, I, I've heard that this one, I am a Statham fan, obviously. Really? And and I've enjoyed a lot of Statham's kind of lesser films. You know, they're they're modest, but very entertaining often. And I've heard from a fellow Statham aficionado that this one delivers. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. That's Wild Card, now available on VOD. And finally, a new romantic comedy. It's just after Valentine's Day as we are recording this. But if you are still in the romantic mood, maybe check out The Rewrite, directed by Mark Lawrence and also available now on VOD. The description of the film is, when an Oscar-winning screenwriter finds himself broke and needing work, his agent gets him a job teaching at a New York school, but his idea to give minimal effort in class doesn't work as planned. And this stars Hugh Grant and Marissa Tomei, along with J.K. Simmons, Mark Lawrence has directed four Hugh Grant movies. Allison, can you, including this one, 
Can you name the other three? Music and lyrics. Yes. That's the good one. That's, That's the, the reason to see this one. one. Music and lyrics yeah. is a great little romantic comedy. I Him don't and remember. Drew Barrymore. Yeah, I do not remember the other two. Though someone recited them for me recently. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, two weeks notice. Right. And one of my all-time favorite titles. Did you hear about the Morgans? <laughs> Did you? Music and lyrics is the one of the bunch that's really good. I've kind of kind of one of my favorite romantic comedies of the last twenty years or so. One I've seen a couple of times. My wife and I enjoy that one. So I sort of I know this one didn't get fabulous reviews, and it's not coming out at a time of year where you go, oh, it must be a masterpiece. But someone, I hope someone, springs eternal. Someone did tell me something very interesting about the basic setup of okay. the film, which is that when he goes in to like pitch, or I have not seen the movie yet, he goes in to pitch like whatever movie a Hollywood like, studio, right? Yeah, and they're like. We're just not interested in stories from like white men anymore. We're looking for edgy female driven comedies or something like that. So it is basically a sci fi movie <laughs> in which he is out of work because he's just a, another. For too much whiteness. Yes, exactly. His yeah. white maleness. And yeah, like exactly. Hollywood was like, no. We've had enough of these white males. <laughs> it's time for something new. Well, if you are a fan of music and lyrics and Hugh Grant movies in general, you might want to check this one out. That's the rewrite available now on VOD. Our topic on Q Shots on this episode, Southern movies, movies set in the South, and Allison and I are not Southerners. We are not. As I suspect you can tell from our speech patterns and whatnot. We know the region from a little bit of travel, but mostly from the movies, I guess you could say. So I think that uh, is an interesting way to approach it, is what do these movies tell us about this region, and how do we envision the region as a result of those movies now as you mentioned earlier we're doing this inspired by joe which is a texas and texas maybe technically may not be part of the south i think it's a point of debate right it's a point of debate i chose because we did that texas movie podcast i chose not to have any other texas movies amongst our films i actually wound up although i didn't intentionally do it initially i have two florida movies interesting where are your movies set my movies are, one is Mississippi, and the other is Alabama. Okay. And do you think there's any difference between those two in terms of the depiction of the South? Like, is it a state-by-state state thing? Or well, are we lumping these, this whole region unfairly? Are we generalizing in a cruel well, I think way? That, you know, I think that people from Texas would probably argue that Texas, in, in many ways, kind of has its own regionality going along itself, yeah. yeah and and i think sometimes people some people from florida might make the same argument that it you know particularly uh like on the peninsula and getting towards miami you have something that's very different from the rest of the, the south mm -hmm. right um but i don't know i think that maybe those perceptions speak to how how we group America in terms of regions in general. Right. Right? That, like, we have what? We have the Northwest, we have the South, we have the Midwest, and we have the West, right? Those are the four basic well, regions. Well, I would say they're, well, like, modern movies, there's definitely, like, the L.A., kind of Southern California is a whole 
world unto itself. And then I would put like the Southwest, which is like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, that that sort of thing. Right. But I, you know, I think that we have this, uh, we use the, the term the South, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in a very broad sense. But yes. there are obviously huge differences. There are between, many Souths. Yes. Between what life is like in Texas and in Florida and in Georgia. You know, the South is both the, I think there's a real, it, it is like the holder of a real sense of like American authenticity, yeah. right? Of like a particularly American culture, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it's also, of course, the the kind of heart of America's like worst history. Right. And and so I think that that's, there's like a lot to be explored there and certainly a lot of great American literature is in the South and a lot of those adaptations are some famous movies, Tennessee Williams adaptations, Faulkner, which actually comes up in one of my, my, my picks. I don't know. I was thinking particularly of, I, I feel like, I can think of it particularly Tennessee Williams adaptations. There are these great movies about the South or this particular kind of like slightly decaying South, right? Like Southern aristocracy. And those are always what come to mind to me when it's mentioned like movies. Yeah. In the South. I, I don't, not a lot of movies come to mind in like more recent decades though. There obviously are, there Absolutely. obviously are some, I mean, including, uh, you know, mud, I think, is one that I think of a lot that seems to be kind of almost about the idea of the South as much as it is very specifically about its region. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know. I mean, there are some of the most iconic movies around are are about this very kind of decadent idea of the South. Right. right? And the idea of the South. And I think what you're saying about this idea of like a a South, a great South of the past. That also seems to be something. That's slight. That's just like slightly just out of reach, or right. being yearned for. Yeah. yeah, that that seems to come up a lot, a lot in a lot of a lot of movies. Not necessarily in the ones that I'm doing, but just like when I was looking through potential movies to discuss, that does feel like that was a, a theme that came up a bunch of times. And even like uh, it's a, it, it is a Texas movie, but like the first thing that I think of when you say that is something like. The Last Picture Show, which is about like the end of an era, and feels very much like the kind of movie you're you're talking about. Should we get to our picks? Let's get to our picks. All right, you want to go first? What's your first? Sure. What's your first pick? Uh, my first pick is actually very specifically about the kind of the difficulties of of holding on to tradition so much and having tradition and history be such a central part of life. Uh, It is a documentary. It is The Order of Myths, which is currently streaming on Netflix. A 2008 film directed by Margaret Brown, who directed The Great Invisible, about the BP oil spill, which was out last year. Uh, This is a more more personal film for her. And it is, I was, you know, I really liked this film when it came out in 2008. And rewatching it, I just feel like it's, it's one of the best films about think race in America that comes to mind for me it really is so wise and so sharply observed it's about the Mardi Gras celebrations in Mobile Alabama which are the oldest in the United States they started before New Orleans even became a city and it is about the ramping up of uh, in terms of preparations the the Mardi Gras celebrations are segregated there is a white queen and king and there is a black queen and king, and there are two separate Mardi Gras, essentially run by two separate associations that have kind of mirroring traditions involving, like the king and queen get dressed in these elaborate, like, um, you know, 
hand-sewn outfits. There are the balls. There are the ceremonies going up to it. There are parades, but that they are largely separate. And it is about both these these um, two pairs of people, but also about about holding on to uh, holding tradition so dear when tradition is so tied up in terrible history. In particular, I mean, this is just a random fact that comes up. Helen Mayer, who is the the kind of the young the 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 queen uh, on like the, of white Mardi Gras, is this like you know very like apparently very like seemingly very nice like young girl who ha- comes from a, one of the old families in town who also happened to be responsible for the last slave ship to land in the U.S. after the slave trade was outlawed they snuck a ship in and stephanie lucas who is the queen of like black mardi gras is descended from some of the captives of that ship and you're like that, like that is like their kind of direct historical inheritance and uh margaret brown's touch is so delicate in this and uh and her observations are so nicely done and it, if there is commentary ever it's it's often just in the editing in in like for instance, when the designer of the White Queen's dress talks about how it's so nice that Mobile's tradition is that there's only one queen, unlike New Orleans where they divide it up about multiple queens, and the movie cuts directly to the, the school in which Stephanie Lucas works and like a, a drawing of her someone's put up on the, on the board. Isn't it perfect for Mobile tonight to honor the greatest honor that we can bestow on anyone in Mobile, Queen of Carnival. We know that you represent our city, you represent your family, you represent the Carnival Association, but more importantly, you represent a new generation of mayors and lineses for Mobile. We're honored to have you, Queen Helen. Thank you. Max, you and your family are certainly no strangers to Carnival as well. And here you are now, Lord of Misrule. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask that you lift your glass to King Felix III, 2007, Monarch of Merriment, Lord of Misrule, Paul Max Barry Bruckman. To Max. Here, here. This kind of juxtaposition of, 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 of people talking about tradition and history and roots and, and the idea of these terms as both respectable and also sometimes euphemistic. The movie kind of brings that, like, teases that out more and more, including this really great sequence looking at the trees, these beautiful old trees that are um, sometimes kind of like bump up the sidewalk a bit and someone talking about how important they are. And then another person talking about how uh, one of the last lynchings in America in 1981, you know, uh, took place in Mobile. And there's a picture of someone being hanged off of one of those trees. Uh, And I think that what makes this movie work so well is that Brown is from Mobile. Like one of the one of the really nice running themes of the movie is this interview with like this old Mobile resident who keeps getting a different kind of intro title at the bottom each time he comes up to talk. And it kind of reveals different aspects of who he is, including his ties to Margaret Brown. Uh, And she doesn't. She is unflinching in her depiction of the community, but she doesn't stand above it. And I think that there is a much worse movie to be made of someone kind of tisking 
uh, all of these people that doesn't need to. I, I, I think that one of the things that makes this movie so relevant and also empathetic, even when the people in it say just not even terrible things, just like unfortunate things, uh, I, it, is that it allows them to say them without needing to give commentary and you understand <laughs> you feel like you understand so much without needing to kind of have it be pinned down or too simple. And I think it it is damning, but also very gentle. And it leaves the spark, uh, this this space available for for hope um, as well in what happens in that year's between that year's two groups of kings and queens. That uh, is really heartening. It's I, a really fantastic documentary, and it's streaming on Netflix, so it's really worth a watch. I think it's kind of the subtlety of its portrayals of all of these very complicated things. It continues to impress me. That is The Order of Myths. Okay, that's a great pick. I actually haven't seen that one. I've been waiting to. I have no excuse. I just haven't had a chance to, and you've told me about it before. I've heard about it, and it sounds really great. I'm going to have to watch that. Maybe I'll have time tonight to check it out. My first pick is uh, also a documentary, actually, and uh, when I was in grad school, I took a class on documentaries, and we had one particular class on this subgenre of documentaries called City Symphonies, and the one we watched in class, as an example, was uh, Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, which is all about life in a bunch of Russian cities in the late 1920s. And I'm not sure if anyone's ever described my pick as a city symphony, but watching it yesterday, that's what it felt like to me, albeit a symphony for a city that's really not really a city. It's just kind of this sleepy little town in Florida. And it's Vernon, Florida from director Errol Morris, which is currently streaming on Netflix as well. This was his follow-up to Gates of Heaven, and it was originally made for PBS. It's just an hour long, and it has no story, no narration, no title cards. It's just an, a collection of interviews with the people of Vernon, Florida, population 883 at the time Errol Morris was there shooting this, sharing their stories, sharing their jokes, sharing philosophies. And together, it makes this kind of beautiful symphony of life in the South at this time. One guy will tell you about his stories of turkey hunting. Another will show you his collection of animals, a turtle, a possum that he keeps in this cage in his yard. Another will muse on the world of outer space, the future, where different countries may, in fact, control their own planet. There may be a Russian planet, an American planet, and a German planet, and so on. The next will talk about how his faith has guided him in his life and helped him buy a van and all these different things. And then we might see a, a brief sermon from a local minister. And then we might hear war stories from a cop who will show the camera where a stray bullet went through the dashboard of his car into the passenger seat. And the hole is still there. He hasn't had time to fix it yet. I said, well, y'all just leave my gun here. I got to use the bathroom. I said, you got to come back the same way. They said, yeah. All right. I got my gun. I didn't get to use the bathroom, though. I was fixing to. But right out in the pine, I heard one gobble. And they done, they done left. And I said, my God. Boy, that's the best diarrhea medicine in the world. Mm -mm. You hear tur turkey government, you forget all about diarrhea and everything. Headaches, anything. I cure anything. Some of the stories, are, they're a little silly. Um, 
some of the interview subjects certainly are characters in the sense that they have thick accents and they sometimes present these hilarious points of view on the world. But I didn't get the sense at all that Errol Morris was making fun of these people or trying to demean them. It really feels like he's fascinated by this curious little community with all of its particular customs and rules, the way they talk about God and their belief in God, their love of animals on the one hand and their love of killing animals on the other hand and so on. Uh, I've never been to Vernon, Florida. I have no idea what it looked like in 1981 outside of this film, and I don't know what it looks like today. But I definitely felt like watching this movie, I got a sense of it. I got a taste of what life was like there. Now, interestingly, I learned from Wikipedia, which is never wrong, that Morris originally went to Vernon, Florida after learning its nickname, which was Nub City, named because its residents chopped off their limbs to collect insurance money. Now, he tried to make a movie about that, but uh, the... The locals were, somewhat understandably, a little reticent about Errol Morris sharing their scheme with the world at large, and they threatened him with every arm and leg that they had left to them. Uh, but because he already had PBS involved, and he, had, he, he basically had no choice, he had to make something, he decided to start interviewing folks for a movie that had nothing to do with the Nub City thing. So the finished documentary doesn't mention it at all. <laughs> so that's sort of curious. It's this fascinating... And it feels kind of revealing look at this world, this little mini world, and yet it's left out the thing that made the world interesting to the filmmaker in the first place. I'm not sure if that makes it a better film or a worse film, but I really enjoyed it while I was watching it, and I was totally sort of shocked to find out that there was a an ulterior motive originally for Errol Morris. That really surprised me, but I liked it as this portrait of this little town, or at least the, a portrait of the part of the town that didn't involve cutting off legs for insurance money. Well, and that also, there's something very pure about that approach to filmmaking in that you're like, you set out thinking, here's the movie you're going to make, but it's documentary. You're supposed to be true to what's there. Right. 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 And that like, if you, if you're not, if, you're, if, if your movie about Nub City is not coming together, then you make a movie about the things that are there. Right. Are, and, yeah. and it's not like in it, you know, like the more recent, if you haven't seen Gates of Heaven and you're only familiar with his more recent movies, which are much more sort of back and forth, although you never see Errol Morris, you hear him talking to his subjects constantly and it's almost a dialogue as much as an interview. You never hear Errol Morris in the film. You never hear an interview question. It's just these lovely stories. It's just kind of the art of storytelling in a way in this town and these people telling their their live stories it's just it's just great and it's only like 58 minutes it is it's not very long it's a, it's a lovely little film i think it's worth watching it's vernon florida available now on netflix well my next pick is set in mississippi and isn't really it's not set in a crumbling like kind of southern architecture but it is a bit of a a kind of languid one and there are touches of southern gothic to it it is the long hot summer which is available for rent on all the usual platforms and it is as a bonus also streaming on netflix uh it's a 1958 film directed by martin ritz and it's based on three different William Faulkner works. I think there's like a novel, a novella, and a short story all combined in there. It's definitely got some touches of Tennessee Williams to it as well. And it stars Paul Newman as Ben Quick, 
a drifter who quickly ingratiates himself in with Will Varner, who's played by a very enjoyable Orson Welles, who apparently was extremely difficult during the filming of this and clashed repeatedly with Martin Ritz, who eventually got the name the Orson Tamer. (laughs) Uh, But... Uh, Will Varner owns most of the small Mississippi town uh, in which he lives, including a lot of the land outside and a lot of the businesses in it. And Ben is a charming hustler whose family name is kind of haunting him because his father is infamous uh, for getting revenge on other people by setting their property, particularly their barns, on fire. He's a barn burner. So Varner sees himself in the newcomer, hires him, and sets him up as a rival to his own kind of less-driven son, Jody. He wants Ben to marry his daughter, Clara, played by Joanne Woodward. It was her first film with Newman, who she married. Um, Though Clara's holding out for Alan Stewart, played by Richard Anderson, who's from an old family and who's been courting her passionlessly for five years. And this becomes this whole story of sexual repression and class issues and uh, flirtations and and then the set it's it's the long hot summer it's all about this kind of everyone is cooped up and sweaty and uh you know overheated and uh there's also a lot of issues of masculinity in particular varner is by his own description a redneck he's this kind of lusty loud uh guy who's hard on his children he's obsessed with his legacy he describes to clara at one part part setting her up with ben uh who he calls a bull he's brought in to like breed her basically he describes her and his son as like in terms of his land he's like what i I want grandchildren i need to like sow seeds to grow grandchildren uh and jody is always romping with his like sultry wife eula who's played by lee remick uh, but has not gotten her pregnant, which kind of adds to Varner's disdain. Minnie, what are you trying to say? I made plans, Will. Matrimonial plans. Now, you ain't ever heard me say the word matrimony. Well, now, I'm willing to overlook that. You know my married sister in Tallahassee? Huh? Well, she's making me up some hand crocheted sheets. And I've sent away for some flatware with the initial V on it. Minnie, I'm 61 years old. Look, honey, it's no good you trying to tell me you're too old. I happen to be in a position to deny it. And there's all sorts of interesting nuances here, including this uh, whole idea of Clara being kind of being more of a lady, uh, kind of having climbed classes courtesy of her father's fortune, and then maybe like warring with him and slightly disdaining him and uh, channeling that into fixating on Alan, who as far as the movie is willing to say is gay. He's a mama's boy. He's like, he's fragile. He, he doesn't want, he's not the man for her, he says. Uh, And the relationship that forms between Ben and Clara is very wonderful and kind of flinty they uh, they have all of this chemistry, but they also don't really like each other that much. And Ben uh, essentially tries to seduce her by telling her, like, by, by telling her that he he will keep her sexually satisfied in the language of a 1950s movie, where he says, "You'll wake up smiling every morning," as he puts it. And I, I think that there's something that's in in a week where 
Fifty Shades of Grey has opened. There's it's there's an interesting reminder that uh, that sometimes coming through all of this this kind of cloaked 1950s language can seem more dangerous or for more more kind of fraught and uh, more titillating. Uh, and, and there I, there is something about how this movie channels everything, all of its kind of sexual frustration and all of its themes of this into what is still a fairly, I think probably at the time was fairly risque and is now looks pretty well behaved. Uh, and also, I think unlike the the Tennessee Williams style stories to which this you know sort of aspires to be, to be placed alongside, this kind of runs up towards darkness and then shies away from it. There, it doesn't quite reach the the dire fatalistic ending that you you suspect for a little while is coming. And there's something a little reassuring about that. Not that I don't like a good, terrible, tragic ending, but uh, you know. Sometimes you don't want to depend on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> Sometimes you, you're, you're happy with a little affirmation. Uh, so it's pretty wonderful, The Long Hot Summer. Uh, you can rent it on all the usual platforms, and you can stream it on Netflix. All right. I have to admit, I did not even know this movie existed. I was not familiar with it. So it's an interesting pick. And actually, it's a nice combination with my next pick. Firstly, because I think the title of your movie could have worked as the title of my movie. And watching my movie also made me think about Fifty Shades of Grey this week as well. It's called Body Heat from 1981. This is available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. And this one has been mentioned a bunch of times on the Film Spotting Original Recipe podcast. It's been in top fives like top five films of 1981, top five neo-noirs, top five damn it's hot movies. But <laughs> as far as I could find, I don't think we've ever mentioned it before on Film Spotting SVU, but that is changing today. And like Vernon, Florida, it is a Florida movie, but these two could come from different universes, much less different states. This is a very different Florida uh, on display here. It is a neo-noir about this sleazy small-town lawyer played by William Hurt. He meets and quickly becomes obsessed with this married woman played by Kathleen Turner. Uh, they begin a secret affair, and then eventually, in a storyline that's very similar to Double Indemnity, she confides in him that she wants to kill her husband, because she can't get divorced because she signs a prenup. So if she gets divorced, she doesn't get any of her husband's money. So it has to be murder. And she convinces William Hurt's character to help her do it. And from there, there is, uh, there's killings, there's double crosses, there's changed identities. And there's lots of heat, both of the bodily and literal fiery varieties. Um, Body Heat does a lot of things well, but one of the things I think it's particularly good at evoking is the heat of the title, this overwhelming, humid, sticky sensation of the heat in the South. And, you know, I'm a northern guy. I grew up in New Jersey and live in New York. But, uh, you know, I've traveled to the South on a bunch of times, and when it gets hot, especially being someone from the North who's not accustomed to that kind of heat, is just overwhelming. And I love the way... Uh, Lawrence Kasdan, the director, always keeps you aware of the temperature. There's always people in crowd shots fanning themselves. You know, there's the sweat on their foreheads of William Hurd and Kathleen Turner. And, of course, there's the wind chimes that line Kathleen Turner's character's house. They kind of act almost like a dog whistle to him for, like, he hears them and he, like, is drawn. He can't resist her. But it also reminds you of this, this like, hot, disgusting, 100% humidity breeze that sometimes blows on like a hot night in Florida that is really just one of the worst sensations in the entire universe, that feeling of like a hot, 
humid wind, which you feel it watching this movie. You feel kind of sweaty and sticky and gross. You can stand there with me if you want, but you'll have to agree not to talk about the heat. I'm a married woman. Meaning what? Meaning I'm not looking for company. You should have said I'm a happily married woman. That's my business. What? How happy I am. And how happy is that? You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. What else do you like? Lazy, ugly, horny? I got them all. You don't look lazy. <laughs> Tell me, does chat like this work with most women? Some, if they haven't been around much. I wondered. Thought maybe I was out of touch. I might buy you a drink. I told you, I've got a husband. I'll buy him one, too. He's out of town. My favorite kind. We'll drink to him. Only comes up on weekends. <laughs> I'm liking him better all the time. And as Allison was saying, it is interesting to look back at Body Heat this week with movie theaters around the country packed for Fifty Shades of Grey. Allison, I looked earlier at the estimates at the box office. You want to take a guess of what it made, Fifty Shades of Grey made this weekend? Um, I think it was like $80 million. $81 million. Yeah. And we could debate the film's quality, and maybe we will later in our new <laughs> release segment, but I think the important thing about this movie, and I wrote a column about this on Screen Crush on Friday if people want to read it, is that I'm hopeful that its success could bring about the return of more movies, not necessarily about, you know, whipping and chains and things like that, but about sex, not just as a kind of a selling point, but as a crucial element of a story and about the relationships between characters, the power dynamics between characters, because that's what Body Heat is. It's sure there's like sex scenes and it's sexy, but it's also about like this way that these characters are using one another or trying to control one another with sex. And it's, it's, fa it's fascinating to watch. And the guy who made it, Lawrence Kasdan, he wrote and directed it. He's, at the time, he's the guy who co-wrote Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark. After this, he would do Return of the Jedi, basically one of the biggest screenwriters in Hollywood. And in the midst of it all, he was able to make this. It's like, does that happen in today's Hollywood environment? It's hard to imagine. But... Maybe with Fifty Shades of Grey success, it could happen again. I'm sort of hopeful. And, you know, I kind of feel like Fifty Shades of Grey isn't even as, you know, sexy or scandalous as Body Heat was. I don't think it is. No. I, but Body Heat also, I mean, like, Kathleen Turner in this movie is so kind of, like, is, like, one of the most, like, sexually confident and kind of, like, voracious female characters yeah. I remember seeing on screen. It's like, fantastic. A, it's fantastic. It's, like, it's really, like, she was so, she's so kind of singular in that way. Like, there yeah. are very few characters who ever get to be like that. Female right. characters, particularly. So it can kind of get depress you when you think, well, Body Heat is now over 30 years old, and it feels edgier and sexier than the, the brand new movie that's, you know, so edgy and so sexy. But I, I guess I just kind of hope that maybe, you know, it was like Body Heat was like a big movie. It was a big mainstream movie. And I'm hopeful that with Fifty Shades of Grey being such a huge hit, that maybe that the, the Hollywood that made Body Heat may return again. So uh, one can dream anyway. So that's Body Heat. And if you haven't seen it, it's really good. It's available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. Hey, mister. Yeah? I got a question for you. You see me and my dad just got into town. I was wondering if you'd give us a job. We're looking for work. <coughs> How old are you? Fifteen. Well, you got 45 seconds to tell me why I should hire you. I built hay before I worked on a truck. I 
I picked tomatoes, uh, uh, zucchini, cucumbers, uh, okra, squash. All right, that's it. You're not afraid of work, good. What's your name? Gary Jones. I'm Joe. I pay a day's pay for a day's work. I pay on Fridays, so you get a little something today. Okay. But your first real payday is next Friday. We start at about six in the morning, quit at one or two. And if we work till dinner and get rain out, I pay for the whole day. Does that sound fair enough? Yes, sir. All right. Follow this line of trees. Yes, sir. Close to a half mile back to my truck. Juice hatchets are in the back. Yes, sir. You get yourself one, filled up with poison, yes, come on back, same way you went out. Yes, sir. And don't get lost. I won't. Hey! You want to know how much you're getting paid? And that brings us to our listener's choice review. Every episode on Film Spotting SVU, we let you pick our main review by voting from three different options. And this time around, your choices were the latest round of Amazon Pilots, the Chilean film Gloria, and David Gordon Green's Joe. And Gloria, as much as I'm really still looking forward to seeing it, didn't stand a chance. Uh, the Amazon pilots did give Joe a little competition for a while, but Joe ultimately came out on top, perhaps thanks to the power of Nicolas Cage. Uh, Cage plays the title character in the movie, uh, which made its film festival premiere in the fall of 2013 and is part of a run of smaller kind of very regional movies that director David Gordon Green has made recently. Uh, it's preceded by Prince Avalanche and followed by the Al Pacino film Menglehorn and fits pretty neatly between the two thematically. Like Prince Avalanche, Joe is in part about a group of men who go and work out in nature, in this case, clearing trees using hatchets attached to poison. And like Manglehorn, Joe is a kind of actorly redemption project for its star, in this case, Nicolas Cage, who plays the foreman of the tree removal team and a mostly good guy with some dark tendencies towards violence and drinking and self-destruction, uh, ones apparently shared by every other man in his small Texas town, which is not a very cozy place. <laughs> Joe becomes something of a surrogate father figure to Gary, played by Ty Sheridan, who's really on a great run, uh, having gone from Tree of Life to Mud to the next X-Men movie. Um, Gary is a 15-year-old who finds Joe in the woods and begs him for a job. Uh, Gary's own father, Wade, played by Gary Poulter, is an abusive drunk who has his wife and other child, a daughter who doesn't talk anymore, cowering. And Wade and Joe seem on a crash course that might also involve Willie, played by Ronnie Jean Blevins, who is another town resident who wants to cause trouble for Joe. So Matt, when this movie came out, people called out Cage's performance as a return to form after this string of like over-the-top or half-hearted performances, many of them in little movies that have essentially gone direct-to-video. Nicolas Cage has been working a lot lately and ver in very few things that have been worth paying attention to. So my question for you is, do you think he deserves the praise for this role? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think he is the reason to watch it, really. I didn't love the movie, but I did think it was a return to form for Nicolas Cage and, and a reminder that when he cares and when he's got decent material and when he's got a, a part that requires some acting, he can deliver. He really can. And I, I found him fascinating to watch in this movie, and I thought he did a great job creating this guy, Joe, who, as you said, seems like a decent guy, but clearly has a dark past and has some conflictions within him. And I thought he did a great job of bringing all of that out. And 
it's a relatively un Nicholas Cagey performance for the most part in the sense that it's not over the top. It's not silly. There's a couple of moments. In fact, there's one in particular, one of my favorite moments in the entire movie, frankly, which seems like an incredible Nicholas Cage moment where do you have a guess you're you're no, giving a face you have no idea what i'm gonna say oh, well th- tell me it's the part where he goes to the brothel this character frequents a brothel which has a dog that hates him and is constantly barking at him and he comes this one time he's very upset over something else that's happened he shows up and one of the i guess one of the prostitutes opens the door holding back the dog and the dog's barking and the prostitute is like He's like, why do you hate dogs, Joe? And he's like, I don't hate dogs. That dog is an a-hole. He doesn't use the a-hole. He uses the actual word. But And then storms off. And I just thought Nicolas Cage calling a dog an a-hole is just such a Nicolas Cage thing to do that I, I laughed out loud. But those moments are relatively few and far between. It's, a, it's actually a very dark movie i uh, like that scene that you described was followed by your favorite thing to happen in movies a dog, a dog fight, fight a hideous awful dog fight it's not super graphic but graphic enough yeah yeah I, I, generally uh, besides nicholas cage i did find the film i don't want to say too dark because it's not like i'm opposed to dark films but i don't know it, it felt like david gordon green wasn't entirely sure of the film he was making here and that there are moments of lightness. There are some really lovely scenes that reminded me of Prince Avalanche that were Joe and Gary Cage and Ty Sheridan walking around and the older man teaching the younger man. They're both drinking and, and those scenes seem like totally improvised and light and lovely. They're beautifully shot. But then the movie around them is so dark at times and there's the, the world that it's set in this little town just, I had a hard time kind of buying it as a real place. It just seems like a collection of the worst people on the face of the earth that I don't know that I felt like that held me back from saying that this was a great movie. I felt like it was a good movie with some very good performances, but I wouldn't go as far to say it's, you know, a great film. It would not have been made my top 10 list last year or anything like that. I didn't like it very much though. I, I do feel that it's a certainly much better Nicolas Cage performance than we've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. I think even that though, the movie features a lot of non-professional actors and Ty Sheridan, who is a professional actor really kind of underplays his role a lot as well. And in that context with that contrast, I was so aware of Nicolas Cage, even toned down Nicolas Cage, just acting, you Mm -hmm. know, I had a lot of trouble seeing him as the character. I just, Mm -hmm. there was something where he seemed to float above the rest of the movie. Uh, And I don't know. There I, did, I, I see what you're saying. There you know? are a lot of non-professional actors in the movie. I thought some of them gave very good performances uh, yeah, as well. Absolutely. I, well. I think that Gary Poulter, who plays Wade, is a kind of, is a really terrific, chilling... It's almost too good. It's, it's, oh, it it's overwhelming you at know, times. Like, Gary Poulter was a, is a non-professional who right. was found, I think, he was like a homeless man living in Austin, and David Gordon Green picked him. He did this movie, and then he was found dead. Yeah, like, it's really you know, sad. Like, very sad. But, like... I, I mean, just like the way the 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 kind of convincing just naturalness he brings to that role, I think as opposed to Cage, who I, I really, as I said, like I think he did good work, but it, it just also felt like it was taking place in a slightly different movie. I see what you're saying. And I think that the, the, the beard he has here is kind of ridiculous and I don't really understand why he has it. It's so... <laughs> It's so it's both bushy and well managed at the same time. It just seems like a it seems like a wig. It seems like a beard wig. I don't know if it is or not, but it looks fake. And I don't really understand why he made that choice. Nicholas Cage has made some strange hair choices over his career, let's be honest. So 
I think he looks a little out of place, but I felt like I understand what you're saying, but the way that he kind of carries himself and is sort of larger than life, I felt fit the way that Gary, the Ty Sheridan character, sees him as this kind of figure to aspire to, that he seems almost mythic, this guy. And I felt like he fit that element of the movie. I can understand saying I didn't think he fit in with the rest of it, but that was how I sort of felt like he worked, that he had a kind of mythic, larger-than-life quality to him that I felt kind of matched what the Gary character was seeing in him. Yeah, I mean, I can I can understand that, but and I don't I you know, having mentioned Mud, that's a movie in which I think the the movie very successfully shows someone in this like mythic quality that they're trying to portray themselves it, it, as they're trying to portray themselves and then the other side of them as this kind of desperate you know, like the desperate kind of person that they actually are. Right. And I didn't ever really get a sense of that in, in this movie. The scenes in which like where he, where Joe digs the bullet out of his own shoulder and, you know, it seems like that, they just seem so movie-ish to me Mm -hmm. as like, as contrasted with these very improvised feeling scenes where it's the crew out in the woods uh, or, I don't know, the scene where they're people cutting up a deer inside their house for whatever reason. You know, the those these scenes in which there are a lot of non-professional actors and they're kind of allowed to cl- be a little loose, clearly. And those those scenes seem to have a particular quality that if I don't love them, I understand. And I just never felt like the kind of more scripted elements and, you know, Nicolas Cage in particular, but also even the friendship, as much as I think those the the scenes of them wandering around together were nice uh, I, I just never felt like they matched up yeah I, I guess we sort of feel the same way and disagree at the same time because i kind of agree with everything you're saying and i just felt like i liked all those moments i just didn't feel like they kind of came together in any way although some of those scenes i was a little like the scene with the, as you mentioned the one where that he walks it uh, joe walks into this house where they're awkwardly butchering a deer that to me just seemed so over the top well, and there's, silly. Well, there's definitely the movie definitely gets into kind of grotesquerie. Yeah, and in sometimes in ways that feel a little distancing and exploitative. Like you, you do. It's not just like here's a portrait of a poor rural area. It's like look at how terrible <laughs> these people's lives are. But it you also, know. I also couldn't feel, I, sometimes I almost felt like it was verging on deliberate comedy too. I mean, the stuff with Cage calling, <laughs> calling the dog an a-hole, like that there, th- I don't know. I, I just didn't feel like David Gordon Green had a real good handle on the, on the tone, tone he was going for. I agree. And I feel the same way with Manglehorn, which hasn't come out yet, but okay. I think, which I have not seen. Right. Yet. But like is eerily similar mm-hmm. uh, it, and that you feel like it never quite settles into when it's comedy and when it's going for serious drama. Right. And yeah, I don't know. I I think, I mean, he's a guy, David Gordon Green is a guy who started out making very serious movies and, you know, kind of beautiful, elliptical, elliptical, poetic, dreamy, and then became, I don't know if he's famous, but certainly made a reputation in Hollywood making like broad improvisational comedies like Pineapple Express and that sort of thing. And now it feels like he's trying to kind of marry the two, I guess. Like he's making the kind of old school movies he used to make, but trying to lighten them a little bit, maybe make them not mainstream, but a little more palatable uh, by by kind of lightening them a little bit. And at least in this case, I didn't really felt feel like it totally was successful, even though I generally liked the movie okay and thought Nicolas Cage was great. I felt like Prince Avalanche was maybe a better 
film I, and a better a better merging because that movie never got as dark as this one and it was it was sort of indie and lo-fi and and had had moments that were very kind of dreamy and poetic and beautiful but but it never got dark and so you were allowed to the the, the comedy and the the kind of improv side of it between those characters was allowed to it felt more natural and more real whereas here it just they kind of butt heads the two different sides of the movie i felt yeah i agree and i i appreciate his range as a director yeah you know that there's i, I can think of almost no director who has made the types of the, the range of movies that he has and if you put this movie in front of me and didn't show me the credits i probably would be able to guess if i didn't know it was a david Gordon green film that would be one of the directors i would guess that it would be so there's certainly a personal stamp to it as well yeah i just i don't i don't think that it ever really pulls together there is a looseness to it that that doesn't feel like it's for its own benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, in some ways it's the worst combination of, or it's this unfortunate combination of feeling very, very rambly, like very deliberately rambly. And then also having a, in the end, like a fairly formulaic story of a father figure, you know, like coming to the, this like doomed, like father figure type, uh, stepping into this role reluctantly. And yeah, it, you know, it, it, it follows these lines exactly as you would expect. Yeah. And it gets really, really bleak and dark by the end where the point of, uh, by the end of the movie, I was just, I, I mean, I was feeling kind of miserable, like deliberately, like the movie is trying to be sad and dark. And I was just like, ugh, ugh. I just kept going, ugh, ugh. Oh, sad, <laughs> depressing, really uh, d dark. Yeah, I should mention also, David Gordon Green grew up in Texas, so mm -hmm. I don't know if it was this particular part of Texas, but I think that if I had seen this movie be made by another filmmaker from New York or something, I would have felt very uncomfortable about his treatment of people in the region. It would have felt false to you. And I think it just would have felt like... It would have felt like exploitative. Right, and, and so, you know, it's so cartoonish. It's so cartoonish, and life you in would this assume town is that so... Yeah. Like kind of like relentlessly bleak. So the fact that he has a track record and he's from the area gives it a certain amount of I'm assuming, credibility. And, and then also like the weirdness of the the specificity of like the tree business. Right. There's Which is another thing that relates to Prince Avalanche where they right. were working in a, in a like a burned out forest and trying to repair it here. And, and put the, uh, the dots between the They roads. were repairing yes. a road that was through like a burned out forest. And here they're trying to destroy a forest to, to have so it replanted, to have it replanted with better trees, right? So yeah. there's a kind of a connection there. If you're into finding auteurist themes between these movies, there's there's a tree thing going on here. Well, and I think that the specificity of that were clearly like th he didn't just come up with that. Like some there was some business, like something that he actually encountered right. or found somewhere. Right. And I feel like that gives it a little more groundedness and interesting too. It's an interesting thing to watch. The problem is that they spend a, b a fair amount of time in the beginning of the movie with that crew showing you what they're doing and the fact that you know they're, what they're doing is illegal, you would expect that to be kind of a plot point at some point, that there's going to be some kind of trouble or drama, and there really isn't. The whole kind of you know cutting down trees or poisoning the trees thing never really comes back. There's a little kind of button on it at the very end of the movie that's sort of an ironic twist or a kind of a callback that is nice, but it really never amounts to anything. No, it doesn't. And given that the movie starts off so much with that, it really just becomes in the end this drama about the town. Yeah. Yeah. And, and about, about the characters families. that yeah. don't like each other. The one other guy that I wanted to mention that I thought 
gave maybe the best performance in the movie that we haven't talked about a whole lot is the actor Ronnie Jean Blevins, who plays Willie, who's sort of the the villain or antagonist of the movie, who is introduced driving up to wherever Nicolas Cage's character Joe is and just shooting him and driving off, and then we see him kind of picking on a bunch of people. He keeps antagonizing Joe. He starts an antagonistic relationship with Gary and the father. And I, there was something about the way that character was portrayed. He has this kind of scarred up face and he's he's constantly bragging about I went through a windshield and I don't care but as soon as someone tries to like stands up to him he he cowers and he like ah, ah, and he kind of cries like a you know like a baby and I it felt very real to a kind of awful like the kind of awful bullies I've met in my life who talk a big game but as soon as you stand up to them is is uh, the you know the, the weakest of, of all people and that's sort of he doesn't get a ton of screen time, but I, I was always kind of pleased when he showed up because I felt like he added a, a nice texture to the movie and, and, and something a little more interesting and unusual to it. Well, and like a sense of humor a bit. A little bit, yeah. There, and there's not a lot of that coming around in this movie. He does have, and, and as dark as the ending is, there's this moment at the ending where that, that thing he keeps saying about how I've, I went through a windshield, that there's a really funny callback to that that is dark and gruesome but laugh out loud funny as well so yeah i thought I, I i'm not sure what else he's done that actor i'm not familiar with his work i'm looking on his uh wikipedia page and it seems like he's done a, actually a, quite a fair number of films not a, maybe not a, a lot of huge roles but uncredited or smaller parts i thought he was great he's done a lot of television as well i wouldn't i'd like to see him do more stuff well uh not not a firm recommendation from either of us. In fact, I I don't think this is one I would recommend. But I'd give it a mi- a mild recommendation if you're a Nicolas Cage fan. It's certainly worth seeing for him. There's some nice stuff in there. I don't think it's uh, David Gordon Green's best for sure. But you can find Joe on Netflix, and it's also streaming on Amazon Prime. All right, let's do Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. And we already mentioned it. We got to talk about it briefly here, at least. Fifty Shades of Grey. Allison, is it the best movie of the year or the best movie in of history? The <laughs> <laughs> There's I only two options. The only two options in history. Um, I know. I think the surprising thing about this movie for me was that it wasn't a disaster. Like, no, I didn't think it's it not was, a disaster. It's not at all. No. You know, it's. It's not by any means the greatest romance of our era. No. But it is, it's got a sense of humor. Does it, that, yes. It has sex in it. It has, uh, you know, the not sex. Not super explicit no, or. No, though I, I will say like having, you know, just going back over recent history, cinematic history it, for a multiplex well, movie. Yes. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had a Which movie. Which is sort of what sex. I was right, saying earlier. We were Absolutely. About before. And I think is also endlessly interesting as a depiction of like female desire and kind of like a female romantic fantasy. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I find the most satisfying aspect of it really is just how different it feels Mm -hmm. that it just does feel very like female gazy. Yeah. It's certainly a type of movie that we don't see all that often. And I, I hope we get more of. And like I said earlier, I hope that its success inspires more more movies uh, uh, fr- that are quote unquote female gazy and and more and more interested in you know male and female relationships. Uh, that would be fantastic. It, it's not a disaster. I think on Letterboxd you can find uh, me over there, and I think I gave it like two and a half stars out of five, which is yeah. not a positive review. I would not recommend it, 
but it's not bad. It's not horrible. It's not. Yeah, you don't. Sit I, there it almost would be a better movie if it was if a it was worse like movie. Worse, if it was yeah. like a, if it was just a total disaster. Yeah, it's funny. it's not Showgirls. It's, it's not certainly not Showgirls. Campy. I, it's funny wait, when I ran a review of this early last week, I got immediate like angry notes from people. I saw who that. Had not seen the movie. We're only basing this on the book, which I have not read. But Me neither. Like, this is glamorizing abuse. This is yes. glamorizing, uh, you know, s- emotional abuse. Yes, I got some of them too on Twitter when I published that piece about the importance of the film, which didn't have anything to do with the content so much as the right. the fact that, as you said. What Hollywood makes today is so unsexual, so asexual, so neutered. And here is something, even though it's relatively tamed by probably the standards of the book and, and, and the subject. And also stunningly old fashioned in its basic ideas about romance, about like yes. it is about a virgin who is who falls in with this rake, a libertine, yes. right? And yes. then like ends up winning his heart and taming him. And basically. taming him and yeah. T- yeah, tr- yeah, teaching him about uh, romance, essentially. Yes. My big issue with the movie, having not read the book, not knowing anything about it beyond the basic outlines, was that basically nothing happens. There's no story at all. And it's literally about this woman played by Dakota Johnson, who's actually pretty good in the film. Even though she's playing a character who has nothing to her. Right. Deliberately, like very deliberately is written as this like blank. Yes. Uh her, the whole, her big dilemma is like, do I sign this contract to become this man's basically his sex slave or his, you know, his his submissive to his, his dominance. weekend, right? His weekend, his submissive. weekend lover. Yes, that's literally the whole movie. There's nothing else, and there are mentions of other plot threads that get dropped and ignored. And I guess it's you know it's the first of three stories, and it feels like it at times because they they introduce characters that, that are have, have three lines yes. that have nothing to do or. Yeah, and it just abandons all that stuff, and it really is just these characters flirting and then having sex. And and did you sign the contract yet? I'm doing my due diligence. I, you know, like, and I just kind of did get bored at times, to be honest with you. Even though it's a movie with a lot of sex in it, I found it pretty boring. Yeah, but it's it, not a disaster. It's not a disaster. And I will say, it's a movie with a lot of sex for a a studio movie, though it also looks pretty tame compared to like Cable. It looks like tame, but and, it, and it looks tame compared to Body Heat and like even the erotic thrillers that Paul Verhoeven made twenty years ago. Like mm. it's not even up to that level of smuttiness. And I say that in a good way. I want it to be smutty. It's Fifty Shades of Grey. It should be smutty. Right. It is. I mean, it's it's it is like a slightly edgier Harlequin Harlequin romance. Like it is in. It's very monogamous. It's very like, you know, I, it takes place in this very insular world. Yeah. But, but the fact that it's it's so popular and could potentially change Hollywood forever, I think it makes it more interesting than good. But it oh, is absolutely. interesting. It I, is an interesting it. text. Like, I have had so many long conversations about it since seeing it that I think are much more interesting than the movie itself. Yeah, but that maybe. I've really enjoyed. Yeah. So there, that's whatever. Take from that what you will in terms right. of a recommendation or not. Right. Also out this week is Kingsman, mm-hmm. which is uh, Mark Miller... Matthew Vaughn, another collaboration between the two of them, mm-hmm. has also, I think, th- had a pretty good weekend. Yeah, made about 35 million bucks, which is pretty good for this time of year for that kind of movie, up against a pretty, uh, uh, like a juggernaut in Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, they work pretty well as counter-programming. In many ways, The Kingsman is a masculine fantasy. It is, it's kind of a, it's a twist on James Bond. Yes. With some kind of class culture. And also kind of a throwback, too. It's pretty old-fashioned in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. it is, I mean what I liked about it was that it felt to me like a modern version of a Roger Moore 
James Bond. It's it's silly. It's campy. It's over the top. It's colorful. It's all the things that the Daniel Craig bo- Bond movies are not. Right. When now that they have become so kind Serious. of like, psychologically. Yes. Bleak. He's a tortured figure. Which right. I, look, I like I, Daniel. I, Craig. I really like too. Yeah. I like the Daniel Craig Bonds, but I also like some of the Roger Moore Bonds, and and this movie at times I felt really captured their spirit in a fun way. I really liked the setup of this movie. I liked the concept, and I liked the first half. Mm. I just feel like there is this Mark Miller style, mis- like misanthropic worldview that just creeps in in the second half. That was just it really soured for me. Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, I don't think it's as bad as Kick Ass in that regard. Like I rewatched Kick Ass last week and found it to I liked it even less than I did when it came out, and I wasn't a huge fan to begin with. And yeah, Mark Miller's hand can be very dark, misanthropic, and kind of gross. But I, I, I don't know. I felt less of that and more of, of the lightness that it just seems to me. It seems yeah. like such a. Well, I, I like the lightness, but I felt like get, starting from and I won't spoil this, but starting from a scene in the church onwards, it right. just never reconciled the lightness right. with some of the body count that it racks up. Yeah, I, I, I guess I could see that. It, it does kind and of. I, I mean, like it revels the, in, in in violence in a way that can it can be pretty and, extreme. And I feel like. The, the way the lightness does and doesn't kind of combine with the, the you know, like the big stakes at the end mm-hmm. was really problematic for me. So I mean, think it's fair. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's it, it's got like a really funny premise. And I think it's got a really it's an, a really enjoyable Colin Firth performance. Colin Firth is fantastic. He's really great in this. He's really, really good. And he's got a good performance from the lead. Taron Taron Egerton, yeah, yeah, the guy who's the sort of his his um his protege who becomes a new spy in this secret organization. And like the kind the most interesting idea that it has going on is like a council housing a council flat guy who is growing up to a particular you know like in this kind of grim household, and all of the secret service that uh, they're involved in is very coded to a particular class status, right. And then there's this there there's this idea about what it's like to have him be the working class guy. Right. Well, there is an interesting thing, too, about modern versus old fashioned in the movie as well. And the way he dresses versus the way Colin Firth dresses and this and his organization, the Kingsman and their traditions. The Kingsman is literally tied to a Savile Row tailor. tailor, Right. Like it's it's about everyone gets a suit, a custom Savile Row suit. Yeah. But you also have Samuel Jackson, who represents kind of new wealth as well. And the way he dresses and and the fact that he's like a tech billionaire there is kind of an interesting subtext there it's not huge but i think there's something interesting there as well that's eh, it's fun i i i enjoyed it i like it. i think i i like it be- i like it a lot better than kick ass i'll say that i'm very mixed on it uh, it's fun. it's got a lot of ideas i like all right so let's get to uh, behind the eight ball now let's run down three new releases two listener recommendations and one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists Allison, do you want to go first? Sure. All right. So let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Amazon Prime is Mood Indigo, which is the latest film from Michelle Gondry, the great inventive, sometimes crazy director. Uh, This one is based on a surreal 1947 novel by Boris Vian. Roman Dury plays Colin, who is a wealthy bachelor who spends his days doing things like creating a piano that also makes cocktails and eating food cooked by his attorney and chef, Nicolas, played by Omar Sy, in a role that is pretty regressive. And then he falls in love with Chloe, played by Audrey Tattoo, and life is even better until she's diagnosed with an illness, a flower growing in her lung. Uh, And that is one of the many, many 
uh, surreal Gondry-ish touches in this movie, which is really like it starts off just way too much. Like it is like Pee Wee's Playhouse. The introduction <laughs> is just like uh-huh. it's like you're like too much whimsy, and then becomes really heartbreaking and lovely. But uh, it's definitely if you ever liked Gondry's things, it is worth a look. Uh, that's on Amazon Prime. New to Fandor is Cairo 678, which is a drama about sexual harassment in Egypt, which is particularly rampant. It's it's to the point where it affects how women, you know, choose to leave the house and uh, walk around. And it's channeled through the experiences of three female characters. There's a kind of lower income woman who gets harassed and groped on the bus, but can't afford to get to work any other way. There's a middle-class woman who's assaulted in a crowd at a stadium and subsequently abandoned by her husband who was unable to reach her when it happened and who can't get over it. And there's a stand-up comedian who's attacked on the street and who fights back. Uh, This movie made the festival circuit, and I don't remember if it even got a theatrical release, but it is really provocative and interesting and and got some pushback from the Middle East where some people thought it, uh, particularly in Egypt, they thought it was giving Egypt a bad name though there are plenty of kind of news incidents about cases of sexual harassment of women on the streets. Uh, and I think it, it uses a, a fictional structure to, to deal with this uh, very effectively. So that's new on Fandor. And finally, new to Netflix is Stray Dogs, the latest film from Simon Liang, uh, who made What Time Is It There and Goodbye Dragon Inn. And it's his first film in four years and won the Grand Jury Prize at Venice. Netflix describes it as through beautifully composed scenes, this moving family portrait follows the odyssey of a father and his two children living on the fringes of Taipei. Um, Sai's work can be like the definition of meditative with these like super long takes and very austere sensibility. But this is one that I've heard many good things about and I hope it doesn't just live on my my list forever. I hope I actually get to it or maybe not. Uh, This was a line from Stephen Holden's review in the New York Times. It concludes with a static 12-minute shot of, of Mr. Lee, who's one of the stars, and his distraught partner gazing off into space as a single tear trickles down her expressionless face. So we'll see. The aristocrats. <laughs> yes. We'll see if I get around to that one. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Maddie, who writes, I really appreciate all that you do with this podcast. The podcast is consistently entertaining and a great source for film recommendations and i particularly enjoy how you both gleefully indulge in your own personal tastes matt may be a special case with his undying love for arnold schwarzenegger which will no doubt end with matt transforming his entire look or maybe just his hair a la single white female the steroids just, aren't working yet i mean i'm looking at him right now and the the resemblance is eerie thank you <laughs> Um, I try. Maddie continues, I wanted to recommend Wild Style on Netflix. This is a film that feels absolutely essential to any hip-hop fan out there. The film chronicles a graffiti tagger who gets swept up in the East Village art scene and helps to put on a giant art and music festival while trying to remain true to himself and his art while bigger fame tempts him. Wild Style is a snapshot of New York, particularly the South Bronx, in the early 80s. And in brief, this is the scene where hip-hop culture was born, and the film offers an entertaining ride through its cultural history. One of the best scenes involves Grandmaster Flash scratching on the decks in someone's kitchen. Wild Style is a classic for that scene, but more so for capturing an important time and place. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's involved how, exactly? I don't know. I'm sure he shows up in the background. You know how he was about 80s hip-hop. Um, and then we have a recommendation from Patrick. 
he who writes, I would like to recommend the Academy Award nominated documentary short Crisis Hotline Veterans Press One, which is now available for rent on Amazon. This year's crop of doc shorts is the most innovative group of five I've seen. And Crisis Hotline passes the Wilmore documentary test in which it does this work. It, it works as a film outside of the story. Um, with flying colors, Crisis Hotline is a behind-the-scenes look at the U.S. Veterans Crisis Line Call Center, which is tasked with fielding thousands of calls from suicidal war veterans nationwide. Instead of a, an expose on veteran services, the film profiles the employees of the call center, documenting individual calls in their entirety from the counselor's perspective. At a brisk 40 minutes, the film is a masterclass in building tension within a documentary framework. The experience of watching trained counselors literally talking callers off of ledges is at once thrilling, harrowing, and heroic. Not since Glengarry Glen Ross has a call center been this exciting. It's an extraordinary document of a group of American heroes who continue to save lives long after the fighting stops. All right, and one film from your my list. You mean number 55, which is Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, this Just is in time for Oscar season. Right? This is the, the description from Netflix. Deftly intertwining three story threads about backstage circus life, this splashy big top epic won the 1953 Academy Award for Best Picture. And not noted in that description is that it's widely considered <laughs> one of the worst films to have ever won Best Picture. Maybe the worst. Yeah. Maybe the worst. Yeah. I think that people really, it's like now between that and Crash. And crash, people talk yeah, about it. I've one, never seen it. I have never either. This one does start. Charlton Heston, Heston, Gloria Graham, Jimmy yeah. Stewart, and... Uh, and apparently, and this song, it apparently also like gets lost in circus ephemera for like long, long stretches. Well, it's incredibly long, isn't right. it? Right, it's incredibly. I mean, Cecil B. DeMille, he not one known for his brevity and minimalism, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that's on there. You know, I'm curious, but it's also one that is. It's not, one of those ones it's that a tough you're one like to settle into. No, that's the right. It's a, it's a, what, you, what was it? Fifty something? What, what did I give you? Where was it on your 55. list? Fifty five. Fifty five. That's exactly where it should be. It's like the kind of movie you're like, I should watch this someday, and then you're also I like, know. I'm never gonna watch this. <laughs> All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Three new releases. All right. First up, a collection of films by the great Jacques Demy that was recently added to the Criterion Collection section of Hulu Plus. There are some ten ten Demi films now streaming on Hulu, including Lola, Donkey Skin, Bay of Angels and the young girls of Roquefort. If you're going to watch just one or you want to know where to start, I suggest The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is an unusual musical about a romance that has no dancing or you know typical musical numbers. It looks like an ordinary drama with the one unique twist that every line of dialogue is sung. That could be a gimmick, but it really doesn't feel like it as you're watching it. As far as I'm concerned, this is one of the best films of all time. It is a movie that everyone should see. It is fantastic. I haven't seen a lot of uh, Jacques Demy's other films, but I'm excited that they got added to uh, Hulu Plus because I'm hoping to check out a bunch of them now. So that's Umbrellas of Cherbourg, available now on Hulu Plus. Next, just a quick plug for a movie we recently reviewed on the show. That was Batman Returns, Tim Burton's 1992 very bizarre sequel to his own 1989 Batman, with Michael Keaton returning as Bruce Wayne, with Danny DeVito as the Penguin, and the wholly amazing Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Again, you can hear our complete thoughts about the film on Filmspotting SVU number 73. But this is just a heads up for our Amazon Prime subscribing listeners that the movie is now streaming there for free. Finally, listeners didn't choose our Amazon pilot season review for this episode's Listener's Choice, but I wanted to give a plug for the new Amazon series, not just a pilot, but a full season 
that I watched, I started watching last night and really enjoyed. It's called Bosch. It's a cop drama starring Titus Welliver as LAPD detective Harry Bosch, a character created by novelist Michael Connolly, who's also the guy who wrote the book of The Lincoln Lawyer in the TV series, which I don't believe is a direct adaptation of any of Connolly's books. Bosch is under investigation for a killing he committed in self-defense while chasing a suspect while he stumbles onto a case involving the remains of a young boy who was severely abused and murdered 25 years earlier, a case that has a very personal connection for Bosch as well. So far, I've watched two episodes, very much enjoyed them both. I should say that uh, for Wire fans, for fans of The Wire, the show The Wire, it's pretty Wire alumni intensive. It's got Lance Reddick, a.k.a. Lieutenant Daniels, and Jamie Hector, a.k.a. Marla Stanfield, in um, major roles. And it was developed for Amazon by producer Eric Overmeyer and also features writing contributions from novelist George Pelicanos, who both worked behind the scenes of The Wire. So uh, not as complex as The Wire so far. It's very cop-focused, not really criminal-focused, but it's good. has that hard-boiled atmosphere, the jargon and slang-heavy dialogue that you, you would expect from The Wire. So I really liked it, uh, to the point where I'm kind of looking forward to finishing this podcast so I can go back to watching some more. That's Bosch Season 1, uh, available now on Amazon Prime. All right, two listener recommendations. Well, first up, I just wanted to give a shout-out to listener Justin J., who took me up on my mention on our last episode about Lawrence of Arabia on the small screen and how it holds up. And Justin wrote in to say he had watched it and to say... It took big screen viewing to know Lawrence of Arabia is a stunning influential viewing, but it took a small screen viewing to know it's also an interesting movie and therefore a great one. It warrants being seen in both ways, and so long as some movie buffs continue to deny this, so long will they be a, a little people, silly people, greed, barbarous, and cruel. I think that's a <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia quote. So thank you, Justin, for writing in and letting us know that, yes, Lawrence of Arabia is still worth seeing at home on the small screen. All right. First up, amongst my listener recommendations, I have one here from Millie. Millie writes, Hi, guys. Love the show. Loyal listener from day one. I love the random choices off of your my lists. But I'm curious. Have you ever actually gone back and watched any of those films that have been sitting idly on your my lists? That might be a fun episode to catch up on those titles that have been sitting there for a while. Uh, in that spirit, I decided tonight to watch a film that had been sitting for a while on my my list. Have you ever watched a movie that you've been meaning to watch for some time, then immediately wondered why you waited so darn long? That was the case for me with The Grifters by Stephen Frears. It's been on Netflix forever, and I always figured I'd watch it at some point or another. That time was tonight. Boy, oh boy, what a beauty of a film. Curious why it's not in more discussions of the greatest of all time. It gets Millie's highest recommendation... Thank you, and that's from Millie. So first of all, Allison, should we? This is a good idea, I think. Yeah, we could do an episode just devoted to forcing us to watch some of those random my list. Yeah, picks. I think we it's have a good talked. Idea. We have talked in the past about doing like a listener's choice survey. Like the three options would be options that didn't win the first time around that came very close. Maybe that would be a good thing. We could do sort of like a you know like a, I don't know how to describe it, but like a catch up or a. Uh, uh, going back into the archives episode or something like that. That could be the cue shots theme for that episode, maybe. It's a good idea. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. No, not this next episode, but maybe we'll do that in the in the near future. And then the Grifters. Any thoughts on the Grifters? I, I love the Grifters. I have I've seen it once. I think in high school or maybe middle school. I don't remember seeing it in 
10, 15 years. So I need to, I don't remember it all that strongly. I just remember it going to some fantastically dark places towards the end. All right. I got to, I got to, I'm going to add it to my my list after the show and hopefully I'll be able to catch up with the grifters soon. All right. My second recommendation here is from Joe in Astoria, another longtime listener. Joe writes, I wanted to give an enthusiastic recommendation to the original classic 70s film, The Bad News Bears, which I was pleasantly surprised to see was now streaming on Netflix. I hadn't seen this movie since I was in grade school, but I'd heard how gloriously un-PC it seems now. And boy, would a Hollywood movie with this story be different today, perhaps like the one that they made starring Billy Bob Thornton. But nonetheless, just like in real life, the kids in this movie are foul-mouthed, unfiltered a-holes. A running gag involves one kid casually describing their ragtag team of myth- misfits in terms that casually include racial slurs. Walter Matthau, as their redemption-seeking coach, openly and unrepentantly drinks the entire time he is coaching, and even while driving the kids in his convertible, then gives them beers at a crucial moment. The film really captures the energy and spirit of adolescence and team sports at that age, right down to the adults taking the competition way more seriously than the kids. It's a fast-paced and very funny movie with a bunch of great characters, and all the good feelings it inspires are completely earned. Check it out, says Joe in Astoria. Have you ever seen the original Bad News Bears? A long Allison? time ago, yes. It's I've been seen a this while. one. It's been a while for me too, but not that long. Probably within the last ten years, and it is awesome. And it is, as Joe says, it's very un-PC. It's almost shocking now. Some of the words, the language, the behavior would never fly in a movie that was made in 2015. So it it gives it a bit of an edge and a thrill as well. So that's one I certainly. I second that recommendation of the Bad News Bears on Netflix. All right. One from your My List. You gave me number 27, and that is a television show. That is Sherlock, the modern-day reboot of Arthur Conan Doyle's deductive genius moving through London as a web-adept consultant to Inspector Lestrade with Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock and Martin Freeman as Watson. I have watched some of this show. I watched the first two episodes i think i love the first one and i thought the second one was okay and then i just they're long yeah they are they're They're, movies they're movies so i just haven't you know i just haven't gotten around to watching more of them i did like it but just i have a tough time watching television when i'm you know if my wife isn't interested i i feel guilty watching tv i feel like i should be watching movies so uh, I don't know. Have you watched more of it? Should I, I go? I think I've watched all of them. Yeah. I like them, but not nearly as much as the internet does. Right. So you wouldn't say I need to bump it up to the top of my list. No, it's not my favorite thing of all time. Okay. Though I think they're very kind of enjoyable. They're very yeah, like, they kind were, of it was good. Benedict Cumberbatch is yes. really good. You can see why it made him a star for yeah. sure. But yeah. but yeah, they're not, you know. I don't need to rush out no. or rush in. Since I mean, given that they make them, thing. you know, like I feel like once every year and a half or two at best. Right. There's no hurry also. Good point. All right. Let's get to our listeners choice options for our next episode. The first one here is one I've already recommended. It is Bosch, the new series on Amazon Prime uh, starring Titus Welliver as an LAPD cop. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be watching as much, uh, having just said that I don't watch a lot of television on my own, I'm probably going to finish this season whether we talk about it or not. I really like it so far. It really drew me in. It, 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 there, was a, there was a moment there, I was watching this last night, late at night, because I was having trouble sleeping, and there was a moment where I was like, I could get sucked in and just not sleep for another two or three hours. And I made the conscious choice, because I had to do this podcast, I had to be responsible, I had to sleep, 
So I made the conscious choice to turn it off, but I could have easily gone the other way. So you uh, could have binged. I could have binged. This one has high bingeability, I would say. Very high bingeability. So I think there's some stuff to talk about here. You know, like I feel like the the legacy of the wire could be an interesting topic. We could do with a theme could almost be like wire alumni. Uh, oh yeah. Could be a theme. They've ended up in some interesting places. Yeah. So that could be a theme. Cop shows or cop movies could be a theme. LA cops specifically. LA noir. Yeah. LA noir. Yeah. There's a lot we could do with that. So that could be a fun one. So that's option one. Bosch, which is streaming now on Amazon prime. All right. Option two is available for rent. It is predestination which is a film directed by Michael and Peter Spierig, who did Daybreakers, which was a, a film that had quite a few fans, even though it, I feel like it got, it didn't make a huge impact. Um, this one is about a time travel agent. He, he works for the Bureau. Of a time cop, if you yes, will. Yes. The temporal. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Temporal Bureau, which sends no. temporal agents through time to stop crimes. He's a time cop. Starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, starring Ethan Hawke. Oh, <laughs> and as Jean-Claude Van Damme. As Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, and in this case, the time cop goes back to stop this bomber who commits his crime in the 70s in New York and and fails to stop the bomber. And uh, it goes on to more detail than that, which I won't go into, but some very, just reading the synopsis, it goes to some very interestingly unusual places that I hadn't expected. And I do like a good time travel movie and especially one that in this case, I mean, Daybreakers was the, the world, the world is a vampire. Um, kind of the, the vampiric world once also starring Ethan Hawke that kind of became a metaphor for maybe environmental themes among other things. And it, you know, really made some smart use of vampires in a time where I feel like we are so exhausted by them. And so the idea of a time travel, a kind of high concept time travel movie that, that does the same thing. I'm intrigued and we've already done a time travel podcast, so we can't do that again, but maybe we can do a brother directors podcast oh, or, or Ethan Hawke or Ethan Hawke. He's, he's been doing some acting lately. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I think, you know, there, there are probably some other themes that if we wanted to go into what happened in the other parts of the movie, we could go into as well. But I think there's a lot there, and I'm intrigued. I haven't seen this one yet. I've heard Me some neither. good things. It played, I think, Fantastic Fest and... Or I'm not sure if it played. Maybe I didn't see it there, uh, but I've heard I've heard pretty good things about it. Yeah, as I well. have too. So it's kind of crazy and silly and over the top, but fun. Fun, and it also it's I mean interesting. It, it was in theaters like last month, and it is now on VOD and DVD. So if that's not an argument for something that belongs on the film spotting streaming video unit podcast, I don't know what is. Mm. All right. Option three is also available for rental on Amazon and iTunes and all the usual places and on VOD as well. It is The Last Five Years. It's directed by Richard Legravenez, and it stars Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan. And the plot description says, based on the musical, a struggling actress and her novelist lover each illustrate the struggle and deconstruction of their love affair. And I haven't seen this one yet. Have you, Allison? I haven't. I've heard some good things about it. You know, I was just at a screening with our mutual friend, Jordan Hoffman, who had just come from it, and he was like, oh, it's really great. You should really see it, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, and he was talking about it with some other people, and they were talking about the structure sounded very interesting, and Anna Kendrick is someone I really enjoy. So 
Yeah, I think this is another very solid option. I think it played some festivals in the fall. and It was at that, Tribeca. It was, or at, not, it was at Toronto. It was at Toronto and got some good reviews there. So, yeah, I think this is another very... It's a very solid batch this time. I honestly don't know what's going to win. I would be happy with any of I would options. be happy with all three as well. So, yeah, so that's the last five years... It's available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, and you can get it on VOD as well. All right. So which of these options should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can, as always, send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or much easier, just enter on in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com and your vote must be received by Monday, February 23rd at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account at Film Spotting SVU, and you will have all that week to watch the film or TV show. And then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will go up on Tuesday, March 3rd. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions to you guys and from you guys, from the SVU listeners. And don't forget to send us feedback, SVU at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Anything on your mind or share some choices, some recommendations with us there. Don't forget to leave us some reviews on iTunes. Give us five stars. Leave us a review. It helps us reach new listeners. I think we cracked the top 10 film and TV podcast recently. Yeah. That was awesome. That was awesome. That was great. So, yeah, keep telling people about the show. Keep uh, giving us reviews. We appreciate that. And for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>